the global co-working and conference community, we've had our fingers on the pulse of co-working since 2012, and we've connected thousands of operators, both in person and online. On the Juicy Podcast, we talk with the people making it happen day in and day out. Let's get to it. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Juicy Podcast. I have Dr. Ben Hamer with us this morning, and he is the chief futurist at Creative Cubes in Australia. Welcome. Hey, Liz. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you here. And first things first, this is how I start every single podcast because it's I'm super interested. How are you like as a human? Not your business, not the weather. How are you? I, I'm doing good. I So basically, in Australia, winter here, but the sun's shining outside, so you can't complain about that. I have just changed jobs, and so the creative tube thing is pretty new for me. So that's it gives me energy. I'm an innately curious person. That's really exciting. Uh, I'm currently going through a home renovation at the moment. Less mm. exciting. I mean, the end product will be great, but the process I do not recommend. Overall, feeling good. good. Oh, good. So life is good. I love it. So I'm curious. You know, I know that you've been, you know, doing a lot of research and for your new role at Creative Cubes. How is the flex slash co-working industry doing right now in Australia, in your opinion? Yeah, so uh, it's an interesting one because co-working as a sector is relatively new for me, right? And I was in America at the start of this year. And at this point, I was having conversations with Creative Cubes and co-working was sort of playing around in the back of my mind. And I, I told my friend, I'm not sure if it's like when you buy a new car and all of a sudden you see that car everywhere on the road. Yeah. But when I was in America, co-working was everywhere. I was walking around mm-hmm. Chicago, every block had a co-working space. Like it was massive. And I relate that back to them what I'm seeing here in Australia. And we're absolutely not there, but I think it is getting there. I think it's absolutely growing. And that was a big reason why I ended up wanting to come into the sector as well. So it's a really exciting space here. So before I started, I did a little bit of research and in Australia, so the co-working market's valued at $1.3 US billion and there's around four hundred co-working spaces across what's a pretty big country and then predicted to grow at just over six percent um each year over the next five or so years so it shows that it's promising um but probably not as mature and not as um aggressive as other parts of the world but what is huge here is flexibility of the concept and naturally that underpins co-working so what we've seen here is that Unemployment is really low in Australia. Last year, it hit a record low level, 3.4%. Now it's only marginally above that. And so what that means is employees have more bargaining power um, than they have in the past. And the top three things that workers want here in Australia are salary, work-life balance, and the flexibility to work wherever they want. And in a market where you've got high inflation, low wage growth, organizations can't give the, the pay rises that employees need and expect. So number two and three, well-being and flexibility go from a nice-to-have to a must-have. And so what you're seeing is a lot of pressure on organizations from employees to adopt flexible working practices. On the other hand, you've got organizations who are then mandating coming into the office, and that's still alive and well here. It's almost like some organizations tried it last year, it didn't work, so they said, let's just wait another six or 12 months and give it another crack, and then realize it's still not working. And so you're seeing employees quit, you're seeing employees strongly pushing back, and then that's kind of all culminated in the last couple of weeks here in Australia where there's been countless articles, front pages of the major newspapers that are talking about the amount of faith in office space 
largest commercial real estate here. So in our two major cities, Sydney and Melbourne, there are 14.4% of offices vacant in Sydney, 16.2% vacant in Melbourne, which is massive. And then in the tech sector, their subleasing space has more than doubled in the last 12 months. So all of that's like a really big complicated answer to say that co-working is getting there, but flexibility is really, really a massive thing that's being pushed here from the organization or at employee, but more so employee perspective. And I think that's going to drive a lot of the transformation in this sector and really give a big rise and lift to, to support co-working and the adoption of co-work. Yeah, I, I I agree with you that that will be the end result. I've been saying for a while now that like the thing is, is after the pandemic is what we all demand and want and need is choice, right? We want to work where we want to work, when we want to work, how we want to work. And we don't want to be told to, you know, go to this desk on this floor and do whatever. It's just like we changed. And I think it's really short-sighted when business owners are like, you have to come back to the office. Like, yeah, you're going to lose talent because people are demanding flexibility. And if you don't allow for flexibility and trust your employees, then you're just going to lose great talent. And so I just, I, I love that people are pushing back. I think that's phenomenal. I hope they continue because yes, we are seeing a global dip in office space. It's happening everywhere. And you know what? That's going to that's gonna hurt. And that's going to hurt for a lot of years. And then it's probably going to, you know, ripple effect into the banking institutions as things get turned back and things change. But you know what? Here's the deal. The real estate industry has been living high on the hog for, I don't know, a couple hundred centuries or, so, or well, not a couple hundred centuries, but a couple of centuries. And it's time for a major disruption. And here it is. Yeah, totally. And, and- I think, you know, part of the challenge that I see in all of this is that we're treating it as a real adversarial conversation, like it's either home or co-working or it's the right. office. And naturally, it's all about hybrid, though. It's about doing the right task yeah. in the right environment. And so you've got the commercial real estate companies, landlords, CEOs who are saying everyone needs to get back into the office. You're seeing workers or some individuals who are saying, you know, it's all about work from home. But it's the intermediary that we should really be exploring because Mm -hmm. some roles absolutely require you five days a week to be in the office. Some roles can be done entirely remotely. And the majority of roles should probably be done across both. Um, mm-hmm. And I throw co-working sort of in the mix as um, whether or not that's home, office, whatever it might be, but the concept mm-hmm. of multiple places, places. And yeah. so the, the more we can focus the conversation on that rather than the home's better or co-working's better or the office is better, it's all nuanced. It's better for some things, mm-hmm. not better for other things. And let's try and find the right mix. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, where I fall in this as a longtime co-working advocate is that, you know, all of these people who are quote unquote flexible work are just providing flexible leases and flexible terms and that co-working will continue to thrive and do better than everybody else because co-working spaces traditionally understand how to build community and belonging. And that's what people really need and are seeking, especially with off the charts loneliness 
you know, horrific suicide rates. Like we just need to allow humans to work in communal spaces. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. One of the, on that, one of the, the things that um, we found last year from a study that I was involved in was um, people reported that the ability to work from home really supported and improved their mental health. But then we also had that 40% of Australians regularly experience loneliness while working from home. And so I think it's exactly that point you said, which is people like not working from home, they like flexibility and choice. And so how do you then solve for loneliness, isolation, mental health challenges? And that's where co-working comes in as a real viable alternative, right? Yeah. Yeah. I actually signed up for a co-working space in Austin today because I realized I was working from home too much. Yeah, right. Um, Yeah. So I've got to eat your own dog food, as we say here. So how did you and Toby collide on this earth? Because I'd love to hear how you guys got together and decided to work together. Yeah. Toby's my new boss, like the CEO of Creative Cubes. And I got introduced to Toby maybe around nine months, almost a year ago now. So my former boss, you Toby, they're actually very, very similar people, which I often joke about with the both of them. And Toby and I connected because we found that we had a really shared ambition around wanting to support and enable the growth of businesses and their people. We just went about it very different ways. So Toby, through providing these amazing spaces, to me, it was around doing research to help educate, inform, and to then advise organizations and their people to make them more empowered and future fit. And so we were kind of drawn by this mutual interest and then thought, well, how do we actually work together to make it happen? So that's where we started the conversation around whether or not my skill set and capability could, you know, form part of Creative Tubes and what they did and what they offer. And nine months later, I'm one or two weeks in the door now. <laughs> well, congratulations. I'm excited. So what is it you're going to do as the chief futurist? Yeah, I think it's a question a lot of people are asking because it's not the most common job title. So a part of it is um, around thought leadership and, and that research capability. So understanding and, and mapping trends uh, of what we're seeing out there and how do they apply to either creative cubes or how do they apply to our clients and also advising on core business for creative cubes as well. So I guess when I think about foresight and, and you would know this as well, it's very different to traditional strategy. Strategy in its truest sense in organizations tends to involve looking at historical data and projecting it forwards. And we know that the future isn't predictable, linear, it's volatile. And so rather than looking back to look forwards, it's about looking forwards and then working our way backwards to understand, well, where are we today and how do we get to where we need to be? So playing that kind of role and like, I guess, a live example of that was a conversation Toby and I had two days ago, which was, I was doing some research and work around emerging generations. So a lot of companies are, are kind of saying, Ben, Gen Z's now in the workforce. They're around 25, 26. There's all this change happening. And on top of that, these kids want different things. They have different expectations. And so I was getting a little bit into that space and I came across some research that showed that amongst Gen Z, 40% feel like they are their most authentic self in person. 45% feel their most authentic self online. And so more of Gen Z feel more authentic online and in virtual spaces. So the question was, well, are there co-working spaces that exist in the metaverse and who's building it? And how is that happening? Because it clearly, if not a demand for it now, there will be soon. And so that's the kind of conversation that that we then spark from that. So that kind of half my role. The other half of my role is then we have a client-facing advisory practice or business now. So doing what would be more traditional management consulting services around the future of work.
work, which is everything from, you know, doing future of work strategies and roadmaps and developing plans for organizations, looking at their employee value proposition, doing strategic workforce planning and mapping that to their property requirements. And a big part is around looking at their new ways of working, how those new ways of working manifest in the physical design of an office space. And then how do we enable that by empowering teams and team leaders and and managers as well? Because I think it's a very different world of work. There's a lot of pressure and expectation that's now put on these leaders and managers, but without getting a hell of a lot of support. And so we want to play that role to help organizations and using the the core DNA of what makes Cube so special and co-working in general, which is around creating belonging and happiness. How do we inject that into organizations? So noting where the market's at, you know, it's there's an extent to which clients and individuals will come to us, but for the moment, how can we actually take ourselves to the client, to the organization. And sometimes that might manifest in or or play out in terms of doing an office, contributing to an office redesign or a workplace assessment around how they're utilizing it, how they can shift and adapt it. But at the moment, we're still really shaping and tightening up what that proposition and app services look like. But that's where we are at the moment. Yeah. And I'm so excited about it as a you know, fellow futurist, you know, one of the things that that doesn't exist until now in co-working was having a futurist on staff. And what a lot of people don't realize is like really every major corporation and every government works with futurists. And, you know, there's the like, oh, crystal ball, whatever. You know what? There's a methodology. Like that's why I went to graduate school because I wanted to learn the methodology. And we're not predicting the future. We're forecasting possible outcomes. And we're doing a ton of research. I didn't understand how much I loved research until I got into this coursework. And I absolutely love it. It's so fun. I know I sound like a giant nerd, but it is. And then the thing is, is like once you've got all this data and information, then you can really look at, well, what are some of the possible futures? And then how can I change my business and future-proof it through these tools that we've learned. And it's going to be a game changer for Creative Cubes. And I really think if there's other folks out there that are listening to this, it's like you should look at hiring these guys to help you with your foresight plans. The other thing I like to point out that's a common misconception is people are like, okay, well, what's going to happen in five years? We're typically looking 15 to 50 years out. We're not looking at five years. It's too, too soon in the scope of things. So, yeah, any other common misconceptions or thoughts on that aspect of it? I wouldn't say misconceptions or, or but, but kind of playing out what you were saying, which is really interesting around the timeframes we tend to look at, right? And um, which are much longer and further out than five years. The, the thing that I'm trying to, to sort of adjust to at the moment, because this is my first time working in a, I would say, Creative Cube would be more of a scale up than a startup. But working in this environment, I've come from big corporate, so massive adjustment. And how do you still think about the 15 to 50 year timeframe, but make it relevant to an organization and where they're at, where they're needing to demonstrate immediate value mm-hmm. because of and sort of who they are as an organization and, and funding models, et cetera. And so that's something I'm playing out at the moment. But Absolutely, in terms of working with organizations and being able to play that part and be that external third party challenge for them as well. 
a lot of them don't have this capability in-house because what tends to happen is the way that we're still structured, we're structured in these niche verticals. So you've got HR, you've got property, you've got technology, mm-hmm. strategy. Um, mm-hmm. And I see myself as being the horizontal that sits over the top. So I know a little about a lot. And so it's about how do you connect the dots between those deep experts so that when someone's having a conversation in an organization around, for example, a workforce plan with a five to 10 year outlook, and we're going to have this many people and this is where they're based, well, why aren't you talking to your property team about that? And when the property team mm-hmm. are negotiating their leads, well, have you spoken to the technology team? And, and and kind of being able to facilitate those conversations, provide that challenge as well is I'm seeing increasing value in that organizations don't necessarily always want to have that capability sitting on their books, but yeah. they're looking to a third party advisor to come in and play mm-hmm. that role for them. So that's kind of where we're finding our feet as well. I love it. I love it. I'm excited about it. This podcast is sponsored by Evoke Projects, a leader in co-working and flexible office interior design. At Evoke Projects, we understand that your workspace is more than just a place to work. It's a reflection of your company's culture, creativity, and success. Our team of experts specialize in creating innovative, tailor-made solutions that foster collaboration, boost productivity, and inspire your team to reach new heights. Find out more about how Evoke Projects can transform your workspace into a vibrant, dynamic, and productive environment at evokeprojects.com.au. And Evoke is spelled E-V-O-K-E. And so I saw that you're also an adjunct professor, and I'm curious what you're teaching. Yeah, so I am an adjunct professor at Edith Cowan University, which is on the other side of the country from where I'm based, but where I'm originally from. So I live in Sydney, originally from Perth uh, on the West Coast. And so in terms of my role with the university, uh, it's kind of twofold. So one, I play um, more of an advisor role to them. So mm-hmm. around making sure that the research that they do is very much connected to industry, which they're really passionate about. And so being able to draw those linkages and also advising their business school around the the courses they run, the programs they run. Mm. And again, they see the benefit of having a futurist on board to be able to help inform what they're teaching and and planning for. And then in terms of teaching, I do some work in their executive education space. So I designed a future series for them, which is all about supporting executives to lead and manage in the future of work. So it's four modules to it. The first two who are very much more so around foresight. So mm-hmm. around how to, the methodology in and of itself of, of foresight and applying that through case studies and you know, trend uh, mapping and whatnot. And then the second two modules are around the future of work, what it means for leaders. And yeah, essentially trying to be like an augmentation to if someone had done an MBA in the past, guaranteed they haven't done anything around building that foresight capability. We know it's a real critical mm-hmm. and emerge skill set. So how do you almost offer this as a topic or for someone who's coming in and truly wants to learn this. They may be a leader of an organization. You know, it's a nice entry point. So a lot of the the demand we're seeing is things are changing so quickly, particularly mid-career professionals don't necessarily always have the ability to go and do a bachelor's or a master's degree. So how do you offer those more consumable learning opportunities for them? Oh, yeah. Like there's no way I could have gotten my graduate certificate unless it was during a pandemic because otherwise I'm traveling too much. I'm doing too many events. Like I saw I had this moment in time where I could actually do this. And I mean, towards the end, I was the events were coming back and I was like, this is brutal. I mean, when people do it with like kids and family and full time jobs, I'm like, oh, my 
God, how do y'all do this? Because I needed a pandemic yeah. to have enough time because like the reading, good God. Like, I don't know who they think can read that much. It's amazing. And I'm curious. And that being said, like, I was going to say yeah, at the ahead. moment, like my, my, my biggest hack is because I'm not an amazing reader by any means. And so I tend to just like paste it all into chat DPT and say, can you summarize this for me? It wasn't I, around when I was doing it. Well, I know, I know. But that's my, if you were doing it now, that's thing. In the last sort of month, that's just been my go-to is, because you also, in terms of the practice of foresight, right? Like not only do you come across a lot of stuff, but people love sending articles. And I probably have like 10 articles a day in my inbox. So at the end, it's just paste all the websites in. Can you summarize all of this for me? And I'm getting through a lot more. So you miss some of the juicy bits. I love that hack. I love that hack. Yeah, it's funny. It's We've really been looking at ways to bring more kind of talks about AI into juicy because there's so much fear around it, which I get, like I get it, but I'm seeing so much benefit to it that it's like frustrating to me that so many people are down on it because I'm like, this is so great. You can do more with less. Like, what are you worried about? I know the robots are going to take over and all that, but like what, like how do we help people get over that fear? Yeah, I think part of it is that they, a lot of people haven't actually tried it or have tried it, but not actually and actively engaged with it in the course of their everyday work. And so the way I describe it is it's your own personal intern. So think about what you would get an intern to do if you had an intern. And as a default with that mindset, every time you think, oh, I'll give that to an intern, use generative AI. And the more mm-hmm. that you then get used to it, the more you see the value of it. So I think that's really important. Well, um, and I think it's also thing- talking to people because like you just gave me a really great tip. Stormy, who works with me, gave me a really great tip yesterday. The other day, I had a contract I needed to sign and she was like, oh, just stick it in chat GPT and ask it to find any potential issues with it. I'm like, brilliant. And then I I had to write like a bio for me and it was just too formal. She's like, well, just tell it to make it more casual. I'm like, oh, okay. Like you need to talk to people about it too because we'll all share our tips and tricks and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And, And like not only for your professional life, for your personal life as well, there was an article that I read recently where a single mum of two children uses it to do meal planning because she says, I have a tight budget. They mm. have dietary requirements. So she puts in how much money she has to spend, what her kids' dietaries are, and says, can you come up with a meal plan that matches these calorie intakes and matches these dietaries and then give me the shopping list for it? And she saves a couple of hundred dollars a week now. And Amazing. so thinking about it in your personal life. But yeah, I think that the other thing that's also really important to help take away the stigma or the fear of generative AI is thinking about where we've gone through this sort of adoption of a new product or technology in the past and realize that the world had fell apart. So I think mm-hmm. about um, the calculator as an example, right? Like the calculator came on board. People said, well, what about accountants? Accountants aren't going to have jobs. <laughs> or what about maps? We're not going to be, you know, mm-hmm. going to have that numerical literacy anymore. And it's like, well, well, no, I still did maps in school. I just did a lot more bloody complicated maps than I could have ever possibly done before. Mm-hmm. So it means that we can do things of greater value or do more strategic things by having that ability to, to be propped up by the technology. Or you look at when ATMs were, were sort of put in around the world and people said, well, that's the end of banking and bankers. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, no, the role of the banker is now not just giving you money through a transaction. They're advising on home loans. They're doing much broader and bigger things that have much more value. So uh, being able to map that evolution, I think is really mm-hmm. important 
to then just say, this is another version of that. It's just, we're not talking about accountants. We're not talking about bankers. We're talking about everyone across all roles and industries that have access to this pretty incredible technology. I love it. I love it. Okay. So one for the audience out there is, you know, not everybody can afford a futurist. I know that they can hire you guys. That's great. And it's a really good exercise. It's a really great thing to do with your team. It's just amazing. But if you're just like Joe Schmo and you're just listening to this podcast and you've got like a small co-working space, like, and you're thinking like, but how can I future-proof my business? What are some things that you would advise? Yeah. So I think going off what we were just saying around generative AI, I think absolutely get on board with that. All the stuff we just spoke about is yeah. said talk to people, think about it as your intent, think about all the different use cases for how you can do it. Because as a, if you're a smaller organization as well, like you can do a lot more with less. So I think embracing it is really important. In terms of just a general mindset thing, really important to keep one eye focused on today and another in the future. I think a lot of organizations um, are trapped and paralyzed in the overwhelming nature of just how much is happening and how quickly it's happening. Mm -hmm. And what I often hear is, yeah, I get it. I know I need to do it, but just right now we need to focus on this. Or there's this this disruption that's happening right now. And once that's out of the way, and there's always going to be another disruption, there's always something that's going to take your short-term attention. So it's making the call now to say, we will focus on that but we're going to make sure we're still focusing and have a view around where we're actually going. And it could be as little as when you have executive leadership meetings and and for some companies that might be just a couple of people over coffee, um, for others it could be a board. Um, But when you're having those meetings, actually having an opportunity to talk about the market, um, normally we get focused straight on what we're doing Mm -hmm. and very rarely do we understand what are our competitors doing, what is the market saying, what does the market want? And being able to share some of those those headlines and signals and stories around, hey, I read this. What do you think would happen if, you know, this was more common in 10 years time and how might that, this impact us? And therefore, is there something in that for us today? So, so being able to have those kind of conversations and building that into your operating rhythm within those team meetings is really important. And on that point as well, I think really important to think about and tap into what the market is asking for. I think often we say, here is a product and we're going to push that product onto the market rather than say, what do you need and therefore how might we be able to service that? So that's really critical. And then the, the kind of final thing that comes to mind for me is given where we're at at the moment and where we will continue to be at moving forward into the future, there's going to be a much bigger focus on delivering value and partnership. So whatever you do, particularly for co-working providers, it needs to be more than a transaction. It needs to be more than providing a desk for someone to work from. It needs to be around belonging, happiness. It needs to be experience-led. And so how how are you in it for the long haul with these people that you're partnering with is super critical. Yeah, you are speaking my language. I, I was talking to an operator today and she was just kind of down and just wasn't where she wanted her business to be. And I was talking to her about kind of what events they have and what things they're doing. And I was like, think about what are the things that would light you up? Like there's a co-working space in Chicago that has medical doctors that are part of the of the business. It's like a super high-end health and wellness restaurant, yoga studio, and medical doctors and co-working. And I'm like, oh, 
my gosh, like I waste a lot of time going to doctor's appointments and getting lab work done and stuff. What if that was part of it? You know, what are the things that would like make your life better that you can put into your co-working space? Because yeah, everybody's got a desk. Everybody's got a phone booth. Everybody's got Wi-Fi. Everybody's got coffee. What now? What now? And I could nerd out and talk to you for another hour, but we'd probably lose some people if that happened. So I'm going to ask you a final question that I didn't put in your list of questions because it has to be on the spot. So where were you when you were 12 years old? You get to go back and tell young Ben one thing about the future. What is it? So when I was 12 years old, I was in Perth. I was in year seven living in the northern suburbs with my family. I get to tell myself one thing about the future. So the future, not my personal future, but just what happens in the future more broadly. Either. I think I'll answer both. I think personally, I mean, there's a very kind of more deeper response to that, which is, you know, at 12 years old, going through identity crisis, which later became a sexual identity crisis, a sexuality mm-hmm. identity crisis, and to just kind of being able to embrace who you are and to do that at a much earlier point in mm-hmm. life. Don't wait until you get older and grumpier and all of a sudden go, mm-hmm. hey, I don't and lean into it. And I think around the future more broadly, I mean, it would have been pretty useful to know a pandemic was coming. It could be something around that. I think, though, it's the from an early age, being able to not focus on rote learning, focus on the the critical skills around original thinking and problem solving and working with teams. I think when I was in school, I was so caught up in getting the best grades to go to the best university, to do the best qualification. And I learned very quickly that one, careers change so fast that whatever you end up graduating in is not going to be what you retire with. And so don't put so much pressure on it, but also don't just focus on getting the best grades because then you miss out on learning those critical skills that when you're an adult are so important around being able to work with other people and with the likes of technology, which can, you know, do a quick Google search or throw it into chat GPT and it can spit something out for you. What's the value that you as a human then then add to that? And so I think that's sort of really important. And, and I do some work at the moment that's with high school students that's exactly focused around trying to reshift um, some of those misconceptions around careers, but making sure that they're focusing on on sort of not just what they learn, but how they learn, because that will then set them up for life. I love it. I love it. I think that's fantastic advice. I, I also was very, um, you know, worried about my grade and was I in the right thing. And I changed, you know, I went from business into journalism and, you know, I, I've done nothing with my journalism degree, but it did make me a pretty good writer. And I'm using a lot in chat GPT. So I definitely got some skills out of it. But yeah, it's like those, those social skills are so important that teamwork is so important. Being on a team of some sort, I think is really important. And I really appreciate you sharing about like what you would tell that 12 year old as well, because, you know, a lot of people struggle with their identity and just being like, you know what? I know it seems like it's the end of the world, but it is literally not. And embrace it now and just live your life the best you can. You're going to be great. It's something I yeah, think kids it. today need to hear. Yeah. And I, and I think sort of tying it back to, to co-working, one of the things I absolutely love is you walk into a like a, a co-working building or place and it's just that sense of community and belonging and it, it just elicits that authenticity as well. So that's something that's really drawn 
because it's such a key value that's grown of mine over time. And, and I think it's just inherently within the work that you and the community does. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was in 2015 that we first did the research with Steve King that came back and we were amazed that we weren't really even looking for this, but it came back that 89% of people in co-working were happier. And that's what got published in the Harvard Business Review, which has been like literally the best tag did you see ever and the help like rocket everything forward is like at the core, we just make people happier. And that's what the world needs. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ben, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to many more conversations and completely nerding out on all sorts of foresight stuff with you. And it's been a real pleasure. And and I'm sure this will not be the last time we have you on the Juicy Podcast. Thanks, Liz. Take care, y'all. And we'll see you on the next Juicy Podcast. Thank you.